Great passage, that one, which we're going to unpack a little bit as we go through. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here, and uh, it's great to be with you. Gee, it's looking fuller tonight than it was this morning. <laughs> That's great. It's a great encouragement for the uh, evening service people. Fabulous. Uh, before we begin, let's uh, just bow our heads and quickly in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we do thank you that you love us, care for us, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your Spirit may prompt us tonight, that uh, you may speak to our hearts and minds, and that we may be open and receptive to your word for our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now I'll watch you in, haven't I? <laughs> I should have some middies to throw, but then you are pretty lousy shots. So I don't think that's going to work too well. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> well, one of the features of our modern contemporary services is that we endeavour to give meaning to what we say and what we pray. So, for example, we have done away with a lot of rote prayers and liturgies and we've replaced them with what we might refer to as extempore prayers, where we can focus on current and pressing issues. Now, the issue with set prayers is that we can just rattle off the words without really thinking what they mean. And, uh, but on the other hand, having rote prayers actually starts to drill them into your head so that at times you can actually remember those words, hopefully. But anyway, this is what we do today. So, for example, we used to say the Lord's Prayer in all of our church, Sunday church services. But today, we rarely do it. It's just kind of assumed knowledge, but I just wonder how many of us can actually say the Lord's Prayer without prompts. And yet, this is a beautiful prayer. It's full of meaning. It's full of relevance. And it contains some deep spiritual truths. And it's one of those truths contained within this prayer that I want to explore this evening. The Lord's Prayer begins with the words, well, you put that up nicely, Stuart, thank you. <laughs> it begins with the words, Our Father in Heaven. This is who we're praying to. Our awesome, almighty, wonderful, powerful, magnificent God, the creator of the universe. Our Father in Heaven. Hallowed be your name. You know, God's name it's a holy name, it's important, and it's a powerful name, as we've sung sometimes. His name, that of our Lord God, Father in heaven, Jesus, his name should be honoured and respected. And then we find those familiar words, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These words are so well known to us, but I wonder if you've ever paused to reflect on the question, how will God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? How? How does this happen? How can the will of our Heavenly Father be done on earth as it is in heaven, where he is supreme? How can his desires, his wishes, his intentions be realised here on earth, an earth which is dominated by evil, an earth which is held under Satan's influence and an earth which is populated by stubborn, self-centred people. Is it really possible for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? 
So what did Jesus mean when he prayed this part of the Lord's Prayer? And this is the deep, hard issue that this prayer brings to the surface. And I want to look at that a little further tonight. And let me say, firstly, that Jesus was not a, a deluded idealist. Not a deluded idealist. Jesus knew very well the condition of the world. He knew that the, the will of his Father would not or could not be done in the lives of people who were not willing to listen to him and who in fact rejected his authority. But Jesus knew that God's overall purposes for the world would eventually be realised. In spite of people, in spite of the nations set against him, the purposes and intentions of Almighty God were bound to be, be achieved. So, <clears throat> but here, here in this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, there is this thought that this all starts with the believer, with you and me. And it's the sense that we are praying this for ourselves as much as for the world. If we could paraphrase it this way, Heavenly Father, may your will be done in me, here and now, just as it will be done in the future in heaven. Now this would be very simple and straightforward if we human beings did not actually have a will of our own. You see, our free will is probably the greatest deterrent and the single greatest enabler of God's will in our lives. You see, we are created with a free will. That's how God made us. But we are, and we are not puppets. Like, you know those little um, puppets which dangle at the end of a string? And you've got the puppet master who pulls the strings and makes the puppet dance? We've been created by God to have the right and the responsibility to make our own choices in this life, to reach our own decisions about what we do and how we act. So on the one hand, we struggle with the desire in us to be all that God wants us to be and to be led by his Holy Spirit. And then on the other hand, there is the desire to run our life on our own, led by what we have determined as right and appropriate according to our own wisdom. And this struggle is our common shared human experience. We find ourselves having two wills. These two wills moving separately, sometimes in harmony and sometimes in conflict. There is God's will versus our will. We know as Christian believers who God is and that is our primary responsibility to see that our human will corresponds to the will of God. Sometimes it's referred to as keeping in step with God's Holy Spirit. Practically, all of our Christian growth and maturity lies in doing this one thing, aligning ourselves with God's will and purposes for our lives. And when we do this, when we get it right, we find that we actually enjoy doing the will of God. In heaven, there'll be no hardship. It won't be a chore to actually do God's will. In fact, it'll be a joy 
And likewise in our hearts, in the here and now, if God's kingdom on earth is there in our hearts, then doing the will of God should be a delight and not a drudgery or a chore. So when as a Christian believer we discover the great delight in moving in harmony with the will of God and responding to that will positively, we begin to get a sense or a taste of heaven here on earth, a taste of heaven in the here and now. Now the Bible uses a, very, uh, a number of very graphic illustrations to convey to us the manner by which God, by his Holy Spirit, endeavours to shape the minds and wills of his people. And one of these is that of the potter at work in his will in Jeremiah 18, which we, Sean read to us just a moment ago. <clears throat> Tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house where he'll give him a message. Now, I don't know how many of you have used a potter's wheel. Has anyone done pottery here using a wheel? There was a few people. Is it easy? No. <laughs> it's not. From what I've observed, I haven't actually done it myself, but I watched a few novices try it. It is jolly hard to make that clay into something that resembles anything at all. But what the lesson there is, it is a skill. Pottery using a potter's wheel is a skill that has to be mastered, it has to be practised and developed to produce a desired outcome. The art of making a pottery wheel, the art of making pottery in a wheel, dates back millennia to ancient times. And the wheel was either turned, it was usually a stone wheel, it was sitting on a spindle of some kind, and it was either turned by the hands or by the feet. We've got a photo of that. Yeah. That uh, slide in the middle there shows another wheel below the top wheel where the potter put his feet on and turned it. Unlike us, we don't have, they didn't have an electric motor to drive the wheel. So they had to sort of turn that wheel, make it spin, and then shape the clay. Now, the clay the potter used was really on the nose because it's contained a whole lot of very smelly ingredients, such as rotting grass or other plant material. But the purpose of that stuff in the clay was that it helped the clay to stick together. And so the clay that the potter used in those times is usually prepared in an outbuilding in, a, in something like you know, a pit. And he put the, the clay he was going to use in this pit, toss in the smelly, gunky stuff, and, then, and add some water, and then stomp around it with his feet, and this could take quite a while to actually achieve the desired consistency. And um, when the potter was satisfied that he had the right consistency of the clay in the pit, he would reach down to the smelly uh, stuff, <laughs> clay, and pull out a lump of clay. And then he'd just pat it into a ball with his hands. Now, you can imagine the scene for a moment in his workshop. As he came in, sat down, he placed the lump of clay with great precision right in the centre of the wheel and then began to spin the stone. <clears throat> now at this point, the potter would have some idea of what he wanted to create. It was sort of in his mind. 
and slowly but surely he'd worked that clay. He'd have water and been two uh, buckets beside the um, beside the well, which he'd wet his hands and just keep the clay nice and moist and pliable. And he'd slowly shape that clay pot into something that might become a beautiful ornament, a vase, maybe a goblet. And <coughs> excuse me. Um, and he'd been practicing that for many, many years. Now, this is something I, I, it's probably the ladies find easier to identify with. Um, a beautiful vase was shaped like that, but hopefully you'll get the message that something beautiful is being created here. But in, our, in the case of the passage from Jeremiah, what happens? The potter would sometimes, as he was beginning to shape uh, the article he was creating, sometimes there would be imperfections in the clay and the potter would have to change his plans as to what he was going to make. And he'd, pr- he'd produce something a little less elegant, something a little more practical and utilitarian because nothing is ever wasted. Nothing's wasted because... But because of the resistance in the clay, what was to become what may have been a beautiful goblet or vase now becomes a finger bowl or something like that's on the screen. (coughs) Now, there are many lessons for us to learn from how the potter worked with the clay. In Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. This, this verse reminds us that God has reached down into our lives, into that slimy pit, that slimy mess that was our lives. And he's lifted us out of that mess, out of the miry clay, and set our feet on a rock, a firm foundation. And that psalm continues with God wanting to tenderly and carefully shape us and mould us into the people, into people who reflect his glory. You see, God holds us in his hands as the master potter and he wants to shape our lives. He wants to shape our character and guide our journey through life. And just as the potter uses the water at his side to mould the clay, God uses his word, the Bible. The word of God, the express will of God to shape shape and change our lives. But why is the Father's will, his intention to turn out truly beautiful people, so difficult to accomplish? The answer is simply because we tend to resist his will. Our human nature is to push back. We do not cooperate. And so despite God's best efforts and endless patience, his hands, those tender, gentle, gracious, loving hands, are thwarted by our stubborn wills. So as Jeremiah 18 verse 4 puts it, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we going to be a piece of fine china or just a finger bowl? Are we going to be a beautiful goblet 
a beautiful vase, fit to hold the blessing of God's grace from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or are we going to be just a finger bowl, something ordinary in which passers-by will briefly dip their fingers and pass on and forget all about it? The key to the success or failure of our fashioning under the Master's hands lies in how we respond to his touch. Do we submit to him or do we resist him? Do we submit to him or do we resist? You see, when we submit to someone else's authority, submission means to go along with another person's wishes or commands. Unfortunately, I'm sorry, it means... Um, putting someone else's will before our own. But unfortunately, submission is not a very popular theme today because it has all sorts of connections with tyranny and uh, abuse and oppression. But basically, submission, it's very hard for us to accept. It goes against our ego. It goes against our self-centeredness. And in so many ways, it's, it's human nature to resist authority or restraints, whether it's at home or at school or work or toward the government or even towards God. So it's not surprising that we find it difficult to submit to the will of God. And yet despite our human nature to be independent and autonomous, the word of God comes through clearly with enormous emphasis, with enormous force, with enormous clarity, obey and live disobey and die. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and meet disaster. Comply with God's commands and find life abundant. Ignore them and be cut off. Submission is not optional if we are to live as God's people. It's not optional. We have to put his will before our own. We have to cooperate with his will and his purposes for our lives. And let me tell you, the benefits, the rewards are great. They're incredible. Jesus said in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know, as we explore the biblical idea of submission, we discovered that submission is intertwined with love. We are not submitting to a tyrant, but we are submitting to someone who loves us so much and knows us so well that he sent his beloved son Jesus to die for us on the cross. And as Jesus as our supreme example, he himself submitted to his Father's will. Jesus' mission was an act of love for his father by someone who knew he was so greatly loved. It was a mutual love relationship. So God does not want, through submission, to dominate us. But through submitting to his will, God wants to set us free to be all that we were meant to be. Like a potter moulding his clay you know, God could force our obedience. But he has created us with the free will to submit to him or not. And what's more, God respects our, our 
decisions in that regard. Love and submission are intimately interwoven, connected. Love and submission go hand in hand. You know, when you submit to another person out of love and you know you are loved in turn, it's not frustrating. It's not tense. It's not stressful. But it rather leads to a sense of freedom and joy in that relationship, a life blessed with happiness in a fulfilling relationship with another person. And in the same way, if we love God, it means that we will love the intentions and purposes of our Father in heaven. We will see the good and the rightness of God's will for us. So we will live in obedience because we trust in the love of God our Father has for us in the world. To love him is to obey him. To obey him is to do his will. To do his will is to have a bit of heaven here on earth. So, question, how do we become obedient and submitted to God's will? How do we become obedient and submit ourselves to God's will? How do we reach the place where we really want to do God's will and enjoy it, enjoy obeying him? You see, once we understand this concept of submission, we must make a conscious decision to cooperate with God's purposes. Then once having made this decision, we ask God by his gracious Holy Spirit to invade and permeate our minds, our wills, our emotions, but especially our wills. And as we set ourselves to obey God, as we decide and do what God asks us to do, you know what happens? We actually set God's Holy Spirit free to work in our lives. We release the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit as Christian believers, make no mistake about that. But we set God's Spirit free to work in us, His will and His purposes. And as the Spirit of God works in our wills, in our minds, in our emotions, it produces an increased desire to obey God's commands, to submit to him. And the Holy Spirit also gives us the power to obey, the ability to obey and the power to obey God. As Paul writes in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. God works in us with a purpose. He has a plan and purpose for our lives. And as we deliberately respond to the directions and instructions that come to us from God's Holy Spirit, we will find the energy and the strength and the courage to do what he asks of us. The goal is to find ourselves in complete accord and harmony with the will of our Father in heaven. And this is to experience joy and serenity, usefulness, worth, and you will find yourself engaging in amazing adventures in that you'll walk with God to move in accord with his plans and purposes for us here on this earth. This is, in essence, what, God, sorry, what Jesus had in mind when he instructed his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The question we have to ask ourselves now 
is this. Are we going to be a piece of fine china or just a finger bowl? Sometimes this shaping of us, it can be quite a painful process. But the choice is ours as to whether we let our Heavenly Father work in us to create his heart, his attitude, his passions and his perspectives on life. There's a great little video which I didn't have time to actually show. It's about nine minutes long called God's Chisel. And hopefully we can get a link of that in the, uh, in the bulletin this week. It's, it's worth watching because it makes this point very, very powerfully. As God works with a hammer and chisel on the subject at, the, at hand to sort of chip away those rough edges, those flaws, those uh, areas of, of sin and uh, um, yeah, rejection of God's authority. So I, I commend that to you. But this theme of God shaping us for his purposes brings us to our first reading and in particular Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For it says, We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We, you and I, are God's handiwork. We are his work of art, his masterpiece. And despite our flaws and imperfections, our hang-ups, God loves us just as we are. He has created us, he has shaped us, as something special, something precious. And he loves each and every one of us so dearly. Some people get caught up with being depressed and disappointed with their lives and who they are and what they are and what they do, what they can and can't do. Look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, you will see what God sees. And God sees a masterpiece. A masterpiece created by the master craftsman. And if I can end this sermon with a bit of a negative, remember this, God does not make junk. God does not make junk. In his eyes, we are special, we are precious, much loved. That's how he made us and that's how he continues to shape us. So the question remains, are we willing to allow God to work in us so that we can be all that he created us to be, so that the world will see him when they see us. Will we allow God to work in us so that we can be all that he has made us to be? May we pray. Our Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to suffer and die for us on the cross. We thank you for your great love, your mercy, your grace that's brought us into a relationship with you. Our Father, we pray that we allow your spirit to work in us, shape us, mould us and help us to live our lives, lives which will bring glory and honour to you in every way possible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Q&A. Our favourite spot on Sunday evenings for those of us who are up here. Except maybe Stuart's got answers to everything. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've got any questions, comments, questions. Oh, good. 
Oh, yes, thank you, one. So I've got my mobile phone so I can phone a friend if I get stuck. <laughs> um, my question is, do we really have a free will or is our will bound by our nature? That had to come up, didn't it, Stu? <laughs> because I don't, like, God is bound by his nature. We, God has created us to have free will. So, yeah, th this is a tricky one because there's the sovereignty of God on one hand so that all things go according to God's plans. But he has not created us as robots who are totally compliant with him. And I think the issue really when it comes to um, free will or not is the quality of love in a relationship where one person has the choice to love another is so much greater than if God just made robots who, who would do what he wanted them to do. So there's at that aspect of free will. Um, we can get into yeah, did, uh, yeah all, all kinds of tracks. And ultimately, I think there's some questions along those lines that we just cannot answer. God knows. We have to trust him that he does the right thing. But yes, we have a choice. People, Scripture says God wants everybody to be saved. That's the will of God. He wants everybody to be saved. And yet we know that not everybody is saved. So how does that work out? Because we have free will to say, yes, God, I accept your love. Well, no, God, I don't accept what you've done for me through Jesus. Okay. Um, so that's the short answer to a very, yeah, a big topic. Did that sort of help a little bit? Not really? Yes? No? No. <laughs> Kathy wants to say something? Do you want to add anything, Stu? Not at this point? He's got, oh, um, don't miss Romans. It all comes up in Romans. Yeah. I was going to refer to some of the Romans passages tonight, but we didn't have time to do that. Yes? I guess oh, I just wanted to say my nature is to want my own way. I do think that that's how we've been created. However, the Holy Spirit now lives in me. So I have part of God now in me. And he's able to do what my nature cannot do. And somehow that's how I change, is by his spirit, by his Holy Spirit, not by my nature. Thanks, Kathy. Anyone else? Gavin. Oh, just on the same Darren, sorry. Just on the same theme, just because I'm feeling vicious. Um, you talk about <laughs> submit or resist... Where does predestination fit into that? <laughs> Couldn't help yourself, could you? <laughs> Can we talk later? <laughs> uh, we'll actually, come for the Romans. We'll, we'll deal with that in Romans. Yes? <laughs> we, we can go... Yeah, there's some things that... You can, you can start along a track, try to answer those questions. You find yourself going, coming around in a circle and... Uh, feeling rather unsatisfied with whatever answer you, you give. So, um, as I say, some things we just have to accept. Uh, God knew in advance because he's outside of time. He knows the end and the beginning. Um, so God knows who's going to become a believer or not. So in that sense, there's predestination uh, if God knows beforehand. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we do have free will. So... 
that's as far as I'm going to go tonight. <laughs> yep. Okay, I think we're done. Where's Michael? There you go. It's over to you.